Grace, mercy, and God's peace be yours this day from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Today we would like to take a look at that person who intersected with Jesus during his trial, known as Herod Antipas. You remember the evil King Herod of the Christmas accounts? He tried to kill Jesus by killing all those babies in Bethlehem. Well, this was one of his sons, Herod Antipas, the youngest of seven. When King Herod died, his territory was divided between his sons. Archelaus ruled Judea and Samaria. We might say he got the plum. Philip got the Golan Heights and parts of modern-day Syria. Antipas was given Galilee and what was known as Perea, which was east of the Jordan River, northeast of the Dead Sea, or modern-day Jordan. Later, Archelaus was deposed and a series of Roman governors took over Judea. Pontius Pilate was one of these. If you can sort of picture some resentment and jealousy of Herod Antipas towards Pilate, for Pilate getting what Herod wanted, you would be on the right track. Herod wasn't quite his father. His father was the great builder, we think, of the great temple in Jerusalem, which Herod rebuilt. However, Herod Antipas did build a new capital in Galilee, Tiberias, and he built it on the Sea of Gennesaret, also known as the Sea of Galilee, or later, the Sea of Tiberias. He named it after the emperor, always a good political thing to do. Unfortunately, he missed something and he built it on an old Jewish cemetery. And so for a long time, no pious Jew would come into the city for fear of becoming unclean based on the Old Testament laws. Now, early in his career, Herod Antipas married Phasaelus, who was the princess daughter of King Aretas IV of neighboring Nabatea, modern-day Jordan. But after a visit to his half-brother, Herod II, in Rome, Antipas decided he wanted Herod's wife, Herodias. And so he planned on going back to Galilee, divorcing his first wife. Well, she got wind of this. She took off her home and to her enraged father, who later attacked Antipas and inflicted severe losses and damage. And very fortunately for Antipas, Aretas decided to stop, give up, and return home. Herod somehow managed to hold on to power for 42 years with perhaps a lot of luck. Now, Herod's nephew, Agrippa, who just happened to be the brother of his second wife, Herodias, took over Philip's former territory and was given the title of king. King. This burned Antipas because it is something he had been seeking and asking over the years. Herodias pressured Antipas to go and ask the new emperor Caligula for the title of king as well. One little problem. Meanwhile, nephew Agrippa had accused Antipas of treason to his, notice this, friend and new emperor Caligula. Well, Antipas was deposed and exiled to Spain. But we want to back up about those wives. Despite the already seeminess of the relationship, the divorce and all that, Antipas did something that was expressly forbidden in the Jewish law. He married his brother's wife, and his brother was not dead yet. 
The line of Herods now were always trying to fit in with the Jews. They wanted to look religious. They wanted to look Jewish and be acceptable. They made a semblance of religious observance. But their lives were outrageous, undisciplined, and absolutely wicked. In fact, Antipas had no qualms over stepping on someone to get ahead. To him, life was about power and how to get more. Enter John the Baptist. Now, John was preaching and baptizing along the Jordan in Antipas' southern realm. But, but even worse, John preached hard against sin, including Herod's sin. And John the Baptist publicly condemned Herod for his sinful illicit marriage, which incurred the wrath of both Herod and Herodias. We know from the Gospels that John was finally arrested and imprisoned, and finally beheaded by Herod at Herodias' insistence through her daughter Salome. However, this now incurred the wrath of the Jews, many of whom held John to be a prophet. And now enter Jesus. This is really our entry point into the Passion account. After Jesus' arrest, after he was sent to Annas and then Caiaphas, Jesus was sent to Pilate, who learns that Jesus is a Galilean. Well, Pilate knows that Herod is in town for the Passover. He sends Jesus over to Herod, probably for multiple reasons, which we're going to take a look at in a couple of weeks. Herod is pleased, overjoyed. He's heard about the miracles, everything that Jesus has done, and he has wanted to see Jesus, although it seems he hasn't wanted to see Jesus enough to go during, you know, office hours. So Jesus stands before the man who killed his friend and cousin, John. And Jesus stands before the man who has already declared that he wants to kill Jesus. This is back in Luke chapter 13. Jesus will not accommodate. Jesus says nothing, answers nothing. Finally, Herod loses patience, mocks Jesus, treats him with contempt, he and his soldiers, and sends him back to Pilate, having done Nothing. So what has been accomplished? But stop and think. God has given Herod one more big opportunity to repent and believe. Unfortunately, Herod passes. What, what are some takeaways? I mean, we, we could go through, I was trying to look through all the different lessons. You know, we, we see this ambition, this hunger for power. People had every reason not to trust him. There was nothing he would not do to climb. Herod Antipas had no decency, no courtesy, no protocol. Everything about him was power and how to obtain it. He may have looked interesting in Jesus, but you know in Luke chapter 13, that the people come to him and say, leave this place, Herod wants to kill you. That was where Jesus referred to Herod as that fox. Herod was interested in Jesus, but the interest was only superficial. Isn't that a danger there to us too? How many among us, how many around us, seem interested in Jesus, interested in Christianity, interested in God, but that interest, unfortunately, is superficial? Herod's thinking, how can I use Jesus to make me look good? He would probably claim to be religious, but not spiritual. Religious, but not anything else. He observed the rituals. He was in Jerusalem for the Passover. But 
You know, don't we hear that a lot today? Religious, but not spiritual, or the other way around too. Spiritual, but not religious. I always wonder, what is that even? Herod wanted that, but he wanted it on his own terms. Let's kind of fast forward to this particular one. I think this is probably the main takeaway. And that is his terms. Herod wanted God. Herod wanted Jesus. He wanted the religion. But he didn't want to change anything. He wanted everything on his terms. Or like many of us, on my terms. I've known many people. They wanted God. They wanted church. But they wanted it on their terms terms. They didn't want to change their lives. They wanted to keep going just the way they were. But hey, you know, I don't want to miss out and go into heaven, so I got to have that Jesus box checked in, right? My terms. Have it all. Go my way. My sin. Me in charge. <laughs> that, that's almost a funny one today. Everybody wants to be in control. Well, do you feel in control now? Sitting at home with your social distancing? Wondering if the next person that you pass by might carry the virus? That's real control, isn't it? And yet, we have a God who is in control. Isn't that the difference? My terms mean nothing. My control, it's an illusion. But God invites us to have him on his terms. On God's terms. You know, there's some really interesting stuff in John chapter 3. That's the born again chapter. You know, Jesus talks about being born again. And then he says, you must be born again of the water and of the spirit. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, only flesh. In 1 Corinthians 15, St. Paul says, don't you know, brothers, flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh is flesh. It's sinful. It can't get in. Impossible. And that's the thing. When we want God on our terms, we are flesh and not spirit. But in John chapter 3, Jesus talks about this new birth. Fortunately, Nicodemus says, I don't understand. What do you mean? And Jesus answers by defining his term. You must be born of the water and of the spirit. We understand that as referring to baptism and all that it does for us and delivers. It takes us from flesh and creates spirit. Now we are spirit. Now we are acceptable to God. We can offer worship. Now we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We have the ability to believe and to receive everything God has given us. But now we have God on his terms. Satan tries to make that look bad. Oh, Religion, all this, all this stuff with the commandments. You won't have any fun. Huh. Our terms, my terms, control. Hey, look what God offers. See, his terms are very, very good. His terms are repentance, forgiveness, the outpouring of grace and love. God's terms for us. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Here's what God's terms are. God wants to take a sinner and through no effort by ours, simply receiving the Holy Spirit. He wants to give us the gift of salvation. You know, the gift of repentance and forgiveness. The gift of Jesus Christ and salvation. He wants to give us everything Jesus earned on the cross. Everything Jesus paid for. Meaning, our sins paid in full. Those are God's terms, and those are 
Well, those are excellent, excellent terms. See, Herod wanted to hold on and be in control. He didn't want to admit anything about himself and really hated it. When John brought those things up publicly, God says, let go, confess, receive everything. See, this is interesting. Nowhere in all of Scripture is there a promise of forgiveness to the man who continues in his sin. There is a promise of pardon to the sinner who forsakes his way and turns from his evil thoughts. There are many promises of forgiveness to those who confess their sins in humble penitence and seek to live new lives under the power of this Holy Spirit which God gives us. God's terms. See, Herod's way, my way, leads to a bitter life. Jesus' way, through repentance, forgiveness, the filling of the Spirit, leads to a better life life. Redeemed, reconciled, you become God's chosen child as many of you are. You know we here at St. Lawrence are celebrating our 175th anniversary of a group of colonists that came over and settled here with a mission statement. Get that. A mission statement 175 years ago. And that mission statement was to show how lovely life was when you live with Jesus. And they came into the new world to show exactly that. And they did. And the gospel of Jesus Christ spread. Why? Because they had God on his terms. Better life? <laughs> what a way better life. The life in God. My friends, I pray that you have this life and you continue to experience this life. Yeah, we still face the trials of living as sinners in a sinful world, but we're living it on God's terms, in God's hands, and in God's care. And during these turbulent times, may our God through Jesus care for you and keep you in his arms. Amen. And may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in faith in Christ Jesus. Amen.